Paul Buckley. I'm lead pastor here at King of Grace Church. If you are a guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here. We are a community uh, formed by God's Word. God's Word is living and active, creates life, calls people to Himself, and in calling people to Himself, calls us together to be His people, His church, expressed by many, many particular or what we would call local churches throughout the world. And because, uh, because we're formed by His Word, we are sustained by His Word, we are made fruitful by His Word, and so we feature His Word, the Scriptures, as a prominent part of our, of our lives, really, but of our worship time together. So we take time, approximately half of our time in our worship on Sundays, to look at God's Word. And we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, And we're learning from the Gospel of Mark about Jesus and just how amazing he is. And as we are seeing how amazing he is, we are being inspired to trust him and follow him. And that's really the bottom line of our series going through Mark. Jesus really is amazing. Scripture says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that Christ is uh, all and all. He is, he is really everything anybody truly needs. And my prayer for us in this series as we go through the Gospel of Mark is that we would not only believe that intellectually, we would not only understand it and believe it, but we would embrace it and live it and experience it. And that's my prayer, and that's, I believe, the intent of the Gospel of Mark for us as well. Jesus is everything We truly need. Can you imagine if you had something that was an answer to some major problem in the world? If you had the solution to some major problem in the world, I mean, what what sort of major problems are there? There's economic problems, there's problems with peace and war, Uh, maybe world hunger, major problem. There's a significant part of the world. uh, They do not have regular regular food to eat. Um, They People go hungry, there's famine, um, there's different reasons that that happens. But imagine if you had the answer to world hunger. I don't know how you would have that. Uh, maybe you came up with a certain sort of crop that had in itself all the key nutrients we needed. It had protein, it had, uh, had carbs, it had vitamins, it had oils and so forth. Um, by the way, as, as, a, as an Irish American, I just want to point out that potatoes... Uh, have almost everything. Potatoes and milk are almost a complete diet. So just in case uh, you were prone to make fun of Irish people. (laughs) Boring? (laughs) Yeah, but it does it. It's a complete diet, and that's... Well, I won't get into my Irish history there, but anyhow. um, But imagine if you came up with something better than a potato. Uh, I don't know, maybe a little peanut or something you could grow, and and you could grow this, this food item in any sort of soil with minimum water, so any anywhere could grow it and have the food they need. It was ready to eat. You'd pick it off the, the vine or whatever, and you'd eat it, and you'd have the food you need. What would it be like to have something like that? What would it be like, you know, if you were the one who came up with it? How would it make you feel? How would you, what would you think? I mean, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it, to be able to give that out and solve world hunger? And, and uh, I mean, just the, you'd probably be very rich as well, but very happy and, and just, just glad to see this problem solved. And world hunger is certainly a problem, and that's certainly a noble goal. But I want to tell you that, actually, Jesus is a solution far better than a peanut or whatever potato for world hunger. 
He is the ultimate solution. He is what we need, what we truly need. He's the one who comes to answer all our deepest and, and truest needs for, if you came up with a solution for world hunger, that would be wonderful. And I believe it would please God. But it wouldn't solve the ultimate problems of creation. Because people who are hungry, that's a good thing to feed people, but they eventually, they eventually their bodies perish and they die. And they are accountable to God as creations of God. And there's the reality of our broken relationship with God. And if we continue in that broken relationship, we will live forever apart from God. And, and even if you had world hunger solved, as wonderful as that is, if the truer, deeper need to solve the problem of our broken relationship with God wasn't answered, in eternity, in light of eternity, being, solving world hunger just wouldn't matter a whole lot. It wouldn't matter whether you had been fed throughout your whole life if in eternity you've not eaten spiritual food, you're not reconciled to God. And the Gospel of Mark comes and presents Jesus as this incredible solution to our truest and deepest needs. And through him, relationship with him, our deepest needs are met. Reconciliation with God is provided and lives are transformed through him to become more like him, to walk with him and do things like solve world hunger and so forth. In Jesus, we have everything we truly need. In today's passage, chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, are an important part of understanding how this solution, how Jesus comes to meet our truest needs. It, it, it informs us about how he accomplished this. It says something about him in his mission on earth that he determined to be this solution, and he focused on being this solution. He focused ultimately on pleasing God, not man, and he was undeterred in marching forward to meet and to fulfill God's purpose. We're gonna see how he focused on God's will. He followed God, not man. He, he kept his focus on this goal of pleasing God and accomplishing God's mission, not man's. He kept his focus through prayer. He kept his focus despite enormous pressure. He kept his focus to complete God's purpose. So let's take a look at God's word and learn about this Jesus and how he did these things and what it means to us. Let's pray before we read. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to be this ultimate solution and did it in a way that none of us ever would have designed on our own. And so we're so glad you didn't listen to us, but you listened to the Father. And we're so glad that you remain steadfast and undeterred. And we thank you, Lord, that your word shows who you are and what you're like, so that we can put our faith in you and be found in you and to become like you. So, Lord, would you speak to us through your word? We want to learn more about you. We want to be changed as we encounter you. We want to become like you. Thank you for your living word. Come in. Do your work, we pray, through it today. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. If you were with us last week, you know that the night before, Jesus had been ministering to people, probably a thousand people or so were there at his door, and he probably prayed for even hundreds of people who came to him with sickness and with demons afflicting them, and he ministered, cared for them, prayed for them, healed them, delivered them. 
And now it's the next morning. And that's where our passage opens up in verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. God's word, Mark 1, 35 to 39. Jesus here is getting up the next day after a long night of ministry. He gets up before sunrise, early in the morning. That part of the world, that, that would have been before 6 in the morning. So maybe he's up at 4 or 5 in the morning while it's still dark. And he goes to pray and he does this amidst this press of human need that's all around him. He's just spent a good part of the evening. We don't know how late he stayed up. But I imagine if people came after sundown, which would have been about 6 p.m., and there were a thousand people at the door and hundreds of people probably being prayed for, he was up quite late. And he gets up the next morning early before it's light out, it's still dark. And he prays. And I believe that this little section of scripture, this little account here, is here not just because it's what happened, but because God wants us to learn something about Jesus. It shows us something about Jesus. It shows that Jesus kept his focus on following God and not man. That he kept his focus on following God and not man through prayer, despite pressure and for God's purposes. I believe you have an outline in front of you. Those are the three things I want to talk about, how he kept his focus on following God, not man, through prayer, despite pressure and for God's purposes. So first, through prayer. Jesus gets up early in that morning. And again, that night before, the whole village was there with their needs, and he spends time praying for people. We don't know how many people he prayed for. I mean, you figure a village of 1,000 people, or maybe 2,000, somewhere in there, how many sick people would there be? I don't know. Hundreds of sick people? Hundreds, perhaps, or, or part of some of those people would have been afflicted by demons. So I'm guessing, let's just say conservatively, a hundred people. Jesus had prayed for a hundred people the night before. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people. Last Sunday, we looked at that passage, and we had a wonderful time after church. Uh, many people came up to be prayed for. Thank you, by the way, for those who came forward to be prayed for. It was our privilege to pray for you and ask God to heal you. God heals. God does what he did with Jesus. He does it now through his church. He's wise in how he apportions that. We can't force his hand. He does allow sickness for his purposes. He uses that sickness for good. But we are never to cease from praying and asking. So we did that last Sunday. I think, uh, Pastor Jeff, if you're, I think it was about five to ten people or couples that we prayed for. It might have been more. I'm guessing around that. Uh, and we stayed here for a while. It was great, um, and we are trusting God. We trust that God ministered to you if you were prayed for. We trust that God would bring healing, and he would sovereignly care for you. We know that, so uh, we were just glad to do that. But it was about 10 people, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but you know what? When I was done, I was whooped. I was tired. I went home tired, and that was only 10 people. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus? A hundred 
people coming forward. And, and this wasn't light duty either. These are people coming with serious afflictions, serious sicknesses, heavy stuff. And he's ministering one after another, after another. And if I were Jesus, I would not be getting up early in the morning the next day. I would sleep in, and I might sleep in late, and then I would just hang out and do nothing much the next day if I had done what he did. But here he is getting up early, 4 or 5 a.m. I mean, maybe he only had three hours of sleep. I don't know. It was something like that. He's getting up early in the morning. He gets up at, at oh dark 30 to seek his heavenly father. Why would he do that? Why? And why is it here in Scripture? What's the point? Why, Jesus? Why get up so early before it's light out? And why go to an isolated place? Well, let's just think through it a little bit. First off, he's in the city. There's a thousand people, and he's just done some incredible things. He's had incredible teaching, and everybody wants to see Jesus. And so if Jesus wants to get time with his heavenly Father, do you think daytime's a good time? No, right? Because people are going to be pressing him to to come over to their house or to pray for them or whatever it is. So he needs to get up early before anyone else is awake so he can seek his heavenly father. And he can't really do it where he is because he's in a house with Peter and Peter's wife and probably kids and Peter's mother-in-law is there. Maybe James and John are spent the night too. We don't know, but the house is full of people. And so he needs to go out. He needs to get away from the house. So he goes off to an isolated place, probably somewhere by the lake or somewhere in a field or somewhere. It's away, far away from buildings or people. It's an isolated place. And he does it early in the morning when there aren't any people. So that makes sense, but, but that still doesn't answer, like, why? To get up early, that early, after probably a grueling night of activity, and to, to make a hike somewhere would, would require that he was pretty desperate, I think. He was desperate. What was he desperate for? Well, I think the first answer is that he was desperate for his heavenly father. That's the big answer. That's the complete answer. And I believe that part of his desperation for his heavenly father was just normal human weariness. You see, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is these two natures in one being. His his humanity is not diminished. He doesn't get an out it's not like he's half human and then the rest divine, you know, that, that his divinity overrides his humanity. In other words, the power of God is in him so that he's never tired, never has to eat, never has to sleep. No, no, he's fully human. He's just like you and me. He feels the same thing. He has the same limitations. And to be human is to be weak and to be limited. To be human is to wear out physically. To be human is to wear out emotionally and to wear out spiritually. That's what it is to be human, and we need to face that fact, by the way. We don't like to face that fact. We like to pretend we're divine, and we'd like to, to hide the fact that we're worn out physically or emotionally or spiritually. We like to kind of, you know, retreat into our own private place, perhaps, and regroup and recuperate and not let others know that we're weak, but we're, it's, it's all a charade. Humans are weak. We can only go so far before we wear out. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need to rest. We need emotional refreshment and spiritual refreshment. And Jesus experienced that just like you and me. And so he was desperate to be refreshed. And he knew where to go. The thing that was different about Jesus from you and me is that when we're depleted and weary, we often go to other things. We 
go to maybe good things, recreation, whatever it might be, relationships. All those things are good, but we can go there sometimes to find our refreshment. And Jesus knows he needs his refreshment from his heavenly Father. We are weak, we wear out, and we need to be refreshed. We're, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if stories and pictures and metaphors help you, but uh, I think we're, we're like my cell phone. My cell phone, uh, it has to be constantly recharged, and especially if I forget to turn off all those extra things that I don't need, like Bluetooth and stuff. You guys have a phone with Bluetooth on it? And have you ever by accident left the Bluetooth on or the hotspot stuff on, and like you pick your phone up, and normally you think it's going to be 80%, and it's like it, that the thing comes up 20% battery or 10%, and you're like, what, what happened? And then you don't have a cord. Does that ever happen? You don't have your recharge cord, and you're in trouble? It happens to me. That's what we're like. We wear out. We're, we're like cell phones with the Bluetooth and the hotspot and all that other stuff turned on. And our batteries just drain and we need to be recharged. We need to seek our Heavenly Father to have our spiritual battery, batteries recharged. We're not designed to live otherwise. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think that we can live that way. Jesus knew that. And if Jesus needed to be recharged, then certainly you and I need to be recharged. He did that by seeking his heavenly father. It says that he goes off and he prays. I don't think that meant that Jesus just simply went off and recited a prayer and then moved on. Prayer, when it says uh, prayer, it's speaking about communion with God, being with God, both asking but also listening, hearing, thinking about things, meditating on the scriptures. And Jesus knew that. He practiced that. He taught his disciples. They wanted to know. They saw his life, his prayer life. They said, Jesus, teach us how to live like you do. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to seek the Father and walk with him. And the Lord's Prayer is really a picture, a, a framework for prayer. So you and I need the same as well. We need to recharge. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. And, and, and just a simple way to do that, guys, uh, is just to take five minutes a day. Start with five minutes. I think if I were to ask, and I won't ask, how many people use their cell phone charger every day, if you have a cell phone, we all would say, yes. If I then asked how many people plug into the Lord through a short little time with the Lord every day, I would guess, I don't, there'd be a lot less hands up. Because I think the reality is, is we think we're okay. And we need to plug in. And it's just simple. It can be as simple as taking five minutes in the morning to go before the Lord and, and just to talk to him. Thank him. There's all, all little different ways to understand that. I came up with this one thing called trust, T-R-U-S-T, just a simple five-step thing. You do one thing for one minute each. You don't have to do it this way. T, thank God. Take a minute just to thank him for things that he's done. R, Take a minute to read maybe a psalm or a portion of a psalm, just to read it, read through it. T-R-U, ask God to help you understand it. Pray about it. Talk to him about it. What does this mean, Lord? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean? The Lord is my shepherd. He's a shepherd, he cares for me, I'm a sheep. I shall not want. In him, because he's my shepherd, I, I don't have needs that aren't met. He cares for me. You, that's understanding. S, seek to apply it. Okay, if the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, how do I apply that today? Okay, when I go before with that job interview, I know that he's going to be there with me and he's going to help me. I don't have to be so nervous. Help me, Lord, not to be nervous. T-U-R-T. 
T-R-U-S, and then T, finally T, just tell them about what you need, what those around you need. Just do a minute each, T-R-U-S-T, simple way. If you want, I can tell you later so you can write it down. And there's all sorts of ways to do that, but take five minutes to plug in and then grow it beyond five minutes and then grow it maybe to be more than one time in the day because you and I are like those cell phones. We need to be recharged. And if Jesus needed that, then we certainly need it. And I think that is part of why he got up early in the morning, because he was desperate for God. He needed his heavenly father. He needed to be recharged. But there was another aspect to this that I, that I think uh, is the thrust of the text, is why this is here. Not just that he generically needed help, and he certainly did, but he needed the Lord's perspective in light of the pressure that was on him. The pressure that was on him. There was an immediate fame that Jesus was experiencing. All of a sudden, he is the big name in town. He is the new rock star in Capernaum. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. He's come and he's brought healing and teaching and deliverance. And they think he's, and they know he's something special. He's a prophet. Maybe for some, they're even starting to think, well, maybe he's the Messiah, this one who was to be the prophet, who was to come as the king and restore the kingdom and answer all and fulfill all the promises of God. Maybe he is this guy. There's pressure on Jesus because of what he's done. And people in their own minds have begun to develop expectations for Jesus, things they want him to do. They know enough to be dangerous. They know enough about Jesus. They know enough about the Messiah, the King that's promised in Scripture, to be dangerous because they don't know quite enough to know the whole context. And so they've developed, most likely, ideas in their own minds of who Jesus is and what he should be doing. And Jesus is aware of this. And he has a heart full of compassion for people. He wants to minister. He wants to care. He wants to see healing. He wants people to hear true teaching and to believe in the proclamation of the kingdom. But he knows that their idea of what he ought to be doing is not God's idea. And so he knows he needs to go talk to his father to get his father's perspective on his life. He needs that. When you're someone who's famous, that's just how it goes. Everyone has, develops ideas of what you should be doing. I, I, uh, yesterday, I, uh, some of my family members went to hear Angie Miller. Anyone here know who Angie Miller is? From American Idol, she's from Beverly. Uh, wonderful singer, actually the daughter of, of uh, two pastors, or mom and dad are both pastors in their denomination. Um, and just what, what it must be like to be Angie Miller at this point. You're all of a sudden really popular. And I'm sure there's lots of people who have ideas for what Angie Miller ought to be doing. Her, I don't know, she probably has an agent at this point, her, her family, her friends. Everybody's probably crowding around Angie, wanting to get a piece of the fame and action. And they have ideas for her, what to do. You can pray for her because that's tremendous pressure. And Angie Miller, just like you and I, as a believer, we need to go to the heaven, our Heavenly Father, to get our orders, to get our perspective from Him, not from people. And Jesus knew this, and you can read elsewhere in Scripture how, how uh, people had ideas about what He should be doing. Peter comes to Him and He says, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. 
It says in the passage. Now, that doesn't mean that simply, you know, Peter's just trying to tell Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Just wanted to re- report a fact to you. It says in verse 36, 37, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, good morning, Jesus. How'd your time with the Lord go? No. Everyone is looking for you. In other words, Jesus, what are you doing out here in the, in the isolated place on your own? Don't you understand? We got an agenda for you here. Everyone is looking for you. You're the king. You just healed hundreds of people. You did amazing things. What are you doing? Everyone is looking for you. They want Jesus to do what they want Jesus to do. He, he is the I Messiah for them. And he feels that pressure. They want him to maybe stay in Capernaum. I don't know. We don't know the details. They have some sort of plan, I imagine. And if you read elsewhere in Scripture, you'll see the same thing happens to Jesus over and over again. He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 10,000 or more people with just a, a, a couple, couple loaves, of, two fish and five loaves of bread, if I remember right. He multiplies them and feeds 10,000 people. And he does that because of his compassion and his love and because he wants to demonstrate something more important than a full belly, that there is the bread of life in their midst. And yet, yet they, they don't quite get it. And he goes to the other side of the lake and they follow him all around and they want to f- make him king on their terms. And Jesus says, no way, I, I, I won't have it your way. I won't be the king, the sort of king you want. This was a constant problem for Jesus, actually. This is why in the Gospel of Mark and elsewhere, when the demons say, we know who you are, the Son of God, the Most Holy, he says, silence. Probably for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is he doesn't want others to hear who he is. Why not? Because they'll take that and run with it in their own ideas. And even his own disciples did it. Peter Peter in, in Mark 8, Peter in Mark 8 uh, gets that Jesus is the Christ. This is past. I think we have this to put up. Um, and I'm out of order. No, we don't have it to put up. Okay. Um, in Mark 8, Peter confesses that he's a Christ. Listen to this story and, and, and listen to what Peter does here. He asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then it says, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Mark 8, 31, 32. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wanted to manage Jesus to be the sort of king and Messiah that he wanted. And, and we shouldn't get down on Peter because I think we would have done the same thing. And we do the same thing. We want him to be a certain type of king. And it made sense. I mean, he, he's doing all these miracles. He is the, this, the Christ, the king. And so the natural, normal expectation would be, okay, well, come and be king. Come and right all the wrongs right now. Come and feed the hungry. Come and solve these problems. Come and vanquish political injustice. Come and rule and reign. Restore the kingdom, Jesus. That is a natural thing to think, but it was not 
the mind of God. And there was this pressure on Jesus. And so he needed to get with his heavenly father and get his father's perspective to to see his own life and his own purpose in line with his father's perspective, to define his mission by the father, not pressure. Now, Jesus, of course, was unique in his mission, but there is an application, there is an extension to ourselves in this. We need to ask ourselves the question, do I define myself and my life by what people want or by what God wants? Do I define how I see myself, how I feel about myself, how I think about myself, what I ought to be doing because of others? Now, there's nothing wrong with what others may think, but ultimately, we need to define ourselves and find ourselves not in what others think, but what God thinks. We are to plug into God to get his perspective on our own purpose in life. And let me ask you something. Are you spending more time plugging into what others think than what God thinks? Maybe let me get it more specific for you. Are you spending more time plugging into Facebook than the book? Because Facebook in many ways is what others think about me. And the book is what God thinks about me. Nothing wrong with Facebook necessarily. I use Facebook. And Facebook can be a a place to learn about what the book says. But are you spending more time seeking what others think of you rather than what God thinks of you? Are you in Facebook more than the book? Jesus models for us through his life What all those made in the image of God are to do, we are to find ourselves in God and define ourselves by God. And Jesus did this perfectly. You and I fail. He never failed. He was faithful. And this passage is here in Scripture, not not first to be an instruction to us and how we ought to seek God and spend more time in the book than Facebook. That's, That's a good application of it. But really, more importantly, it's to say that Jesus didn't fail in this. He succeeded. He was faithful where we aren't. Our best efforts will always fall short. Jesus didn't fall short. He sought his heavenly father, and he was bold enough to turn around to Peter and say, no, we're not doing what you want. We're going on from here because the father sent me to bring this message of the kingdom throughout the whole region of Galilee and beyond. The father wants everyone to hear about the kingdom that I'm coming to bring the kingdom, the kingdom has come, that I'm demonstrating its reality, and then Jesus will go on to ensure that the kingdom comes by dying on the cross and rising again. He had the boldness to, to face all this pressure and to move on into God's purpose. Ultimately, that was not just proclaiming the kingdom, and demonstrating the kingdom throughout Galilee and throughout Israel, but it, but it was going ultimately to the cross. In order for the kingdom to come to sinners who don't deserve the kingdom, to rebels like me and like you, Jesus had to go and deal with the biggest problem of all, not world hunger, not sickness, not even demonization. He had to go and deal with the problem of our broken relationship with God. He had to go to that cross And he had to suffer. In order to be the crown king, he had to be the crucified king. He had to wear a crown of thorns before he wore a crown of glory. 
And everybody else wanted to short-circuit that, to write to the crown of glory. But Jesus knew in order to wear that crown of glory, in order to bring about the kingdom, he had to wear the crown of thorns. He had to suffer. He had to die. Why? Why would that be part of this? Well, there's probably a lot of answers to that. But at the core, it's this. That he had to do that in order to rescue you and me from sin. In order to form the kingdom, in order to bring people into the reign of God, in order to bring people into the right, a right relationship with God, in order to bring the, actually the whole creation into right relationship with God, he had to go to the cross. The Bible says that the wages of sin, sin being our rebellion against God in all its forms, and, and it can take many forms from very serious, blatant sins to very subtle, hidden sins. But sin is really any, any disposition, any action that says, I want it my way, God, not yours. I trust in myself, or I trust in this thing instead of you. It's turning our back on God and saying, I want life my own way. It's rebellion. It's cosmic rebellion against God. It's a slap in the, faith, the face of God because God is good and holy. He has given us so many reasons to trust him, to know that he's always good. And sin is rebellion against that bold, harsh, arrogant, ridiculous, stubborn, deceitful rebellion. And you may think that you're better than that, but you're not. None of us are. Now, I don't know your sins. I don't know your heart. I know my own. I know when I really think about it in light of God's goodness and holiness, I despise my intentions and actions that are sinful. And I agree with God when I really think about it that I deserve to be separated from him forever because of my sin. Yet Jesus, God, actually the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from before time said we, we want to provide something better. We want to do something through all this that's better. We want to bring the kingdom to those that don't deserve it. And so they They planned together that the son would become a man and be fully man and fully God. And he would live this life, this righteous life of loving others and living and defining himself by his heavenly father. And he would would resolutely march to the cross despite what his best friends said. He would be a failure. Now to go to the cross too uh, was, was the ultimate failure The cross was a place of curse and shame. It was the lowest point. It was not simply death. It was ultimate failure. It was the ultimate statement of failure for any human being to be crucified. And Jesus resolutely went to that place of failure to die for your sins. So that you, if you should trust in him, could be forgiven and welcomed in to his kingdom and experience the kingdom. So Jesus kept his focus on this purpose of God. And he did not falter. So this passage of scripture is a picture of Jesus and his faithfulness to his father's plans for him, despite pressure. And the first and most important reaction for us in this is to simply thank Jesus that he did not falter, that he kept his focus. 
that he kept his focus on the mission God had for him. He kept his focus on God's purpose. He did that through prayer. He did that despite pressure, but he did it. And he stayed focused on the will of God and not the will of man so that you and I could know forgiveness and life and the kingdom, so that we could have something better than just our stomachs filled. We could have forgiveness and everlasting life with God. We could enter into the kingdom now and know its fullness when he returns, and we could be agents of the message of the kingdom to others, that we could have our lives redefined and transformed by him. So where there was darkness, there's hope. Where there's, where there's sin, there's forgiveness. Where there's rebellion, there's new life and holiness. Where there's hatred, there's love. Where there's aimlessness, there can be now be purpose. That's all from Jesus. He stayed resolute on the mission the Father had given him for your sake, for my sake, for the glory of God. And the best application of this passage is just to simply thank Jesus for what he has done, that he never failed. And I could just finish there. Actually, the band can start to come up, but I could just finish there because that's the most important thing. That's a simple and fullest application. But Jesus' life and choices also do reflect on his call to us. We're called to follow him. We're called to follow Jesus, and we're called to live in the same reality, the same perspective, the same what we could call paradigm that he lived in. We're called to keep our focus on our Heavenly Father through prayer, despite pressure, to live for His purpose and to not define our lives elsewise. To allow Him to tell us what success is and what a full and fruitful life looks like. And the Bible does that for us. It gives us the picture of that. But part of that, part of the life of following Christ means taking up our cross ourselves. Now, we'll never merit forgiveness through taking up our cross. That's not the purpose. That's the big difference. But nevertheless, he tells us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to say, Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I define my life by you, and I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to go through hardship. I'm willing to face disappointments because, because my eyes are on you. Not on whether I get to have this or do that. Not whether I get to have these plans fulfilled or not. We don't get to define how we will glorify God in our lives. God does. And for some of us, you know, God's plan is, is full of blessing and ease. There are those who are out there. They are devout Christians, and yet their lives are easy, and, and, and they're rich, and they're famous. I, uh, I don't know, I think of some of these Christian athletes, um, professional athletes who, boy, they're just so gifted athletically. They're making tons of money. Things are easy. Now, they don't, don't, won't necessarily stay that way. But Aaron Rodgers, you guys know Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, from what I know, he's a devout Christian. Makes about $8 million a year. Does a lot of good stuff. Gives to charity and so forth. And is healthy, athletic. For him, at least currently, his cross is pretty easy to bear. But most of us are not Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers will have his own crosses to bear in life. Most of us are called as we define our lives by the Father to, to suffer or to go through hardship, 
to carry a cross in some way. I think of another Christian athlete, the greatest, probably one of the greatest athletes of the early 1900s, Eric Little, uh, Scottish man, uh, fantastic athlete. Uh, he, the story is, you know, he ran in the Olympics and his event, if I, if I can remember right, I think his event was the, like the 50 meter or the 100 meter, which meant he was really fast in the short run. He, in the, and actually that event was run on a Sunday. His convictions were that he shouldn't do athletics on the Lord's Day. So he, he bowed out almost, I mean, it was a scandal, and, but he ran the 200, which is not his event. He ran it and he won it. And if I remember right, he set a world record in the 200 meter. Just fantastic athlete. But he gave all that up to go to China to minister there and eventually to be interred in a Japanese concentration camp and to die. And if you know the story, he, he did so loving others and serving to the very end. Think of Johnny Erickson Tata, this vivacious young athletic lady who's paralyzed by a freak accident. And then for her life, the way to glorify God meant suffering and weakness, but testifying to the grace of God in that weakness and shining for him that way. I don't know the details of how Johnny and Eric Little live or lived, but I'm sure they were plugging into the Lord and defining their lives by him, not by others. And I think of the people in our church, many of you are doing this already. You are living in light of who God, what God says versus what fame or the culture says. And you are going through suffering and you are shining. I can make a long list of people in our church like that who are dealing with chronic sickness or weakness and yet to talk to them, you wouldn't know it. Not because they're, not because they're faking it or anything, but there's a real grace of God at work to make them shine. I think if you've been around us for a while, you know who those people are. This is what we're called to. This is what all of us are called to. So let me ask you this, this morning, are you living this way? Are you defining your life by what the Father thinks, the truth of the gospel? Ultimately, that Jesus himself was so faithful that he died for you. You are forgiven. You are beloved. And no matter what you have, no matter what you lose, you have Jesus. Therefore, you have everything. Are you defining your life that way? Or are you allowing what others think? or what the culture thinks, or other goals say about your life, who you are and what you ought to do. Jesus calls us by his example to define ourselves by the Father. Now, he did it faithfully, and thank God, because he was faithful. We now have power in him to live like him. So come today and be amazed by Jesus and follow him, and he will be everything you truly need. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you were faithful despite the pressures. And now, through that faithfulness and what it resulted in, we can receive the benefits of it, of forgiveness and life, and the power in you to define ourselves by you instead of mankind or culture. We can stand on something that's firm and meaningful and results in something that's truly worthwhile, your glory and goodness shining through us to touch other lives and to bring you fame. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Fill us now with the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of your word to live in light of these things, we pray.